John Newton is perhaps the writer of the most famous hymn in the English language, and you probably know it, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Newton understood grace, amazing grace, because he understood sin, his sin. Newton was a a wild child who worked aboard slave ships from an early age in in the height of the slave trade. Rejecting his mother's faith, he was known as, as, in his own words, the great blasphemer. The great blasphemer. Newton was a drunkard, a miscreant, and one who led others away from the gospel. That was his goal in life. But in the spring of 1748, God brought a great storm upon the ship that he was in. The storm was so fierce, in fact, that it actually bashed in part of the hull of the ship and water was pouring into it. And so the crew was bailing out water all night long, even all through the night and into the morning at 5 a.m. They're still bailing out water to save their lives. And Newton, it said, in his own recollections, cried out and said, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. And several hours later, the storm subsided and God answered Newton's prayer. Newton's deliverance at sea marked the turning point in his life, the beginning of his conversion. And there would be some more trials ahead for Newton as he's working this out. But Newton's experience of grace at sea changed everything. On his gravestone in Olney, England, we read Newton's own account of his life. He wrote his own epithet that's on his, on his uh, gravestone, still there today. It says, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Newton understood amazing grace because God pardoned his sins and restored him to life, as he said, preserved, restored, and pardoned. Turning to Micah this morning, we see this theme in abundance. We see that God's pardon of our sins is completely and totally undeserved. Completely and totally undeserved. The book takes the form of a lawsuit. There's hearings and God's calling witnesses to bring his judgment and to bring the sentence upon his wayward, profligate people 
God, as it were, is calling his blaspheming people into the courtroom. If there is ever a nation that could be called the great blasphemers, it would be Israel and Judah. So three times witnesses are called, charges are given, sentences are dealt in this book. But nevertheless, three times also we find a promise of future grace a future pardon for the remnant of God's people. And so while this book is going to wholeheartedly damn every person, God is also going to promise future pardon. You see, God is a holy and righteous judge. And before his throne, every one of us stands condemned. Thoroughly and entirely. But in these prophetic writings, we also find mercy. A pardon for sin is promised, and as we'll see this morning, its fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. Micah preaches God's amazing grace in that while we all stand condemned in God's court, God has provided a pardon for our sins that will come in our Lord Jesus Christ. Give you the message in a nutshell, to put it another way. Before a holy God, we all stand condemned. But in God's court, he offers a pardon for sin through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the prophet Micah and his book in two parts this morning. The first is this. Number one, we all stand condemned in God's court. We all stand condemned in God's court. The chief sins of God's people in these days before the exile are idolatry, injustice, and treachery. Idolatry, injustice, and treachery. Or you could say treason, if that word's more familiar. Idolatry, meaning the worship of other gods, oftentimes syncretistically, they would worship the Lord and the other surrounding gods. Injustice in terms of how they treated one another and and grave cases of abuse. And all of that really ended up in this extreme fashion as treason to God's covenant with his people. By these acts, they became traitors. They were treacherous in wanting to abandon God and abandon the covenant that he made with them. And we see this in three cycles in Micah. In the first cycle, uh, we deal primarily with the issue of idolatry. I want to point out just one thing real quickly before we dive into this. If you look at page 7, on your worship folder, you're going to see that there's three cases. Uh, and each case begins with the Hebrew word for hear or listen. So God's calling witnesses. It's like he's conducting a hearing to deal with the charges, to bring the judgment, to bring the sentence upon his people. 
So in chapter 1, we begin in verse 2 with this call to hear. And then we'll see the same thing in chapter 3 and chapter 6. So we have these three courtroom scenes or settings that are going to thoroughly condemn the wayward people of God. So let's look at this in brief this morning. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So the Lord is calling not only all the people, but if the, the earth itself, as if the earth is a living thing that could hear. He's calling creation itself to witness against the abuses of the people of God. And what is the sin that we begin with? It's idolatry. Look down in verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? And in verse 7, we see that God's going to go on to smash all of her carved images and all her wages will be burned, and all her idols will be laid waste. And from the fee of the prostitute by which she gathered these false idols, so to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. We've uh, mentioned this a few times recently, but remember, for the northern ten tribes, their chief sin is called the sin of Jeroboam, that every one of the kings of the northern ten tribes committed was false religion of Yahweh. So they said, we will worship the Lord, but we're going to worship him our way. And so they set up golden calves, both in Dan and in Bethel, so in the north of the south of the northern ten tribes, to worship Yahweh their way. And God calls this idolatry. Their idolatry was not merely worshiping other gods on the high places, but of worshiping the true God the wrong way. And they were warned over and over and over again of this through the prophets, and they would not listen. But likewise, in Jerusalem and in Judah, in the southern kingdom as well, they were mixing the worship of Yahweh with the worship of other foreign gods. And it was an abomination in God's sight. And time and time again, the people of God refused to listen to the prophets. And so judgment is coming. So in this first cycle, we're going to see that the result of idolatry will in fact be exile from the land. In chapter 1, verse 16, well, verse 15, go up there. We read, I will bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. So the result of this persistent idolatry was exile. We have a reference to David fleeing to the cave of Adullam. And just like David had to flee, so will the people of God flee 
from the Lord who will bring enemies upon them and call them to go into exile. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Another sin is mentioned in this opening cycle of sin and judgment as well. We read about the sin of injustice in chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Down in verse 8, we read similarly, But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly, with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor. What's going on here is a national land grab. It's kind of maybe not a sin we think of a lot. But the rich and the powerful were taking land, were seizing lands from the poor and driving them out of their God-given inheritances. Remember, Ahab did that with Naboth's vineyard. He led the way and just with covetous eyes, taking what wasn't his and stealing land from the poor. And that was as well an abomination in the sight of God. And again, the sentence is exile. We read in verse 10, Arise and go, for this is no place of rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. So God is calling them to leave. So in this first cycle, we see this sad reality that Israel and Judah, who time and time again refuse to listen to God through the prophets, they're plugging their ears to his word. They're going on with their idolatry and with their injustices, and therefore God will drive them into exile. We turn to the second cycle of this sin and judgment as well when we come to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we read about rulers and prophets who are denounced. Chapter 3, verse 1, again, we have this verb, this Hebrew verb for hear. So God's calling another hearing in his law court. And he says, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. God is comparing the grave injustices being done primarily to the poor, but others as well, as cannibalism. That by this injustice, you are destroying the livelihoods of those that you're called to serve and protect. 
And it's none other than cannibalism. And the prophet uses this vivid picture of that. The prophets themselves, the false prophets, were participating in it. In verse 5, the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, Peace! when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So the prophets themselves are condemning the poor and who are declaring peace for those who are feasting on them. And the result of this, again, is exile. Verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. So we've had two hearings. And they haven't gone well for the people of God. How about the third hearing? Will it be any better with them? Let's go to chapter 6. In chapter 6, we have the third and final hearing where God summons witnesses. In chapter 6, verse 1, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So again, God's calling creation itself to bear witness, as if creation could come into the courtroom to bear witness to God's charge, his indictment against his people in his courtroom. And what is the sin in this final hearing? We read in verse 3, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And the sin that is in is in God's mind here, is covenant treason. And we know this by the context of what follows afterwards. In verse 4, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And God is reminding them of God's acts of deliverance, how God delivered his people out of the hands of his enemies, how God judged the wicked generation at Shittim, how God brought them into the land, how God delivered them from slavery, in Egypt, and made his covenant with them. The very reason that Israel is in the land is because of God's redemptive love for them and the covenant that he made. And now they're growing weary and tired of God. And what what are they weary about? God reminds them of the simple obligation he gave to each one of them. Verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. God's call upon Israel, his requirements were not hard. God didn't ask them to sacrifice their firstborn children for their sins, although some were doing that, participating in the pagan worship of the god Moloch. They were sacrificing infants, as we read in the other prophets, to appease God. God didn't ask that. Do they need to sacrifice themselves, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? God didn't ask that. All God required them to do was to do justice and to love kindness. That's again the word for hesed, covenant faithfulness, and to walk humbly with God. That, that was it. But they couldn't even do that. They couldn't even do that. You know, I'm convinced that the dominant theme of the whole Old Testament is man's total and utter depravity with hints of grace along the way that are going to constantly point us forward to the gospel. But even these simple things, these these basic tenets of Israel's covenant obligation to simply do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God, even that they could not do. Even that they could not do. And we see that same reality throughout church history, even where nations for a time seem to more wholeheartedly or collectively worship God and worship Christ. Over the course of time, even that basic thing they cannot do, and they fall away. The most simplest of obligations become a wearisome burden. They walk away. They no longer gather. They no longer participate with God's people in the worship that is the due of God. And ultimately, that is treason. That is high treason. And this section, with its sentence, brings upon Israel the covenant curses that we read about all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. And I'm not going to read those for you now. But you can go back and read Deuteronomy 28. All of this stuff was prophesied beforehand and ought to be in the minds of those of the Israelites hearing these words. In verse 13, we read these list of covenant curses that are going to come upon and now will come upon Israel for failing in their covenant obligations. Chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow. 
making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there you shall be hung there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so that you shall bear the scorn of my people. So God's comparing this generation to two of the wickedest kings of Israel, Omri and Ahab, and saying, you've walked in all of their counsels. And so therefore, the sentence given as the gavel strikes is desolation. They're going to go off into exile. So in these three cycles, these three hearings in Micah, these three law court images, we see God's people on trial for idolatry, for injustice, which is ultimately covenant treason. They've committed treachery against the Lord God and now calling God a wearisome burden, too much for them to do. The worship of God is too much for them to maintain. And the result is exile. So every one of them is thoroughly condemned in God's courthouse. As we come to the gospel, the gospel also begins with bad news before it gets to good news. We read in places like Romans 3, that there is no one righteous. In fact, every person's mouth will be stopped. That is, the lawyer will have to shut up because there's, there's no cure for man. We read in Romans 3.9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Not one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth is full, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then Paul goes on. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin so what Paul is saying is that every man and woman and child who has ever been born both now 
in the past, in the future, is, has no righteous standing before God. By our natures, we go before the throne of God, we will stand thoroughly condemned. Whether you're Mother Teresa or Gandhi, whether you're Billy Graham, whether you're the Martin Luther, John Calvin, name whatever saint you like, we all stand condemned before a holy God in his courthouse. We have no evidence to give the Lord to prove our righteousness. Every mouth will be stopped. The whole world is condemned. That's the bad news of the good news of the gospel. But now I want to dive back into Micah and see this, that God offers a pardon for sin. So the second point is God offers a pardon for sin in Jesus Christ. God offers a pardon for sin in Jesus Christ. In other words, we're going to see as we read in Micah and then reflect on it in the New Testament that Jesus becomes our pardon. That on the one hand, while we are thoroughly condemned before God, having no righteous standing on our own, the judge himself has put forward his son who shed his blood for us to be the means of our forgiveness. So that what no other earthly judge can do, we will be pardoned by God's sight, in God's sight when we are unpardonable. So let's dive back into Micah. In each of these cycles or hearings, that begin with this charge, this calling of witnesses, a charge, and a sentencing. Each one of them ends with a promise of future grace, or as I will call it, a, a promise of future pardon. This is where studying structure of books is so important and why taking the time to understand the outline of a book, because the main messages and emphases of the book are found in the structure. Just like um, a human body has no structure without bones, right? Without bones, we just would be a pile of flesh on the floor. It's the, it's the structure underneath that gives a place to see the beauty, right? See the emphases. And in the same way, we see this threefold repetition of grace that follows condemnation, so let's just walk through Micah together and take a look at this then. In the first section, after Israel's been condemned for their idolatry and their injustice, we have a promise of pardon. In chapter 2, verse 12, we read, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate. 
going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So there is a promise for the remnant of God's people. One of the things we're going to start to see in the prophets is an increasing reference to a remnant. There's going to be a small remnant of God's former people that the Lord is going to save and redeem. And the chief promise and sign of God's pardon is that the Lord himself will be their shepherd and be their king and go before them. It will no longer be a a human, wicked ruler. The Lord himself is going to come and be at their head. So we have this image in verses 12 and 13 of a sheepfold and they're, they're buying and, and, and making all sorts of noise. It reminds me of, of when we lived right next to a farm over in Hosfjord. And in the spring, they would let the sheep out from the barns. And there was this little sheepfold right next to the barn. And my office was up there in the second story of the house. And there was a week or two there where I couldn't work in there without noise-canceling headphones because all the sheep, they were buying and, and do, making all the noises that they make. And God has this image. I'm going to gather this noisy gang, this noisy remnant back together, and I will be at their head. The Lord will be at their head, as Micah prophesies. So despite this condemnation, the Lord's going to gather a people and go before them as their king and as their head. We see a similar promise as we come to the second trial. And uh, this, in the second trial, there's a long string of promises, which we don't have time to look at all of them today. But I want to point out one thing for you. In chapter 5, after the Lord promises uh, rest and renewal for God's people in Zion, we read in chapter 5, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But then comes this promise. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little, to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, who is coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. We have this promise now of the place where this ruler of God's people, who will defeat the enemies that are besieging them, and that ruler is going to come from Bethlehem, and he's going to come from ancient stock, no less. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. In Matthew's gospel, we learn the identity of this ruler who will come from Bethlehem. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 2, Herod gets word that there's another competing ruler who is being born that's going to lead Herod to execute all of the male children two years and younger. 
I didn't get to mention it on the sermon on East, on uh, Obadiah a few weeks ago, but we talked about Esau. Remember, betraying in Edom, betraying their role of protecting Israel. Do you know that Herod was an Edomite? He comes from the lineage of Esau. And here in this ultimate way, we have treachery. We have the Edomites trying to destroy the king of kings and lord of lords. And here Herod feels threatened. And we read in Matthew 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. And then Matthew writes, For so it is written by the prophet, citing Micah 5.2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that is written, as we confessed in our response to the scripture reading this morning from Luke 24, of the law and of the prophets and of the Psalms. That's why we sing the Psalms as Christian worship, because Jesus is the fulfillment of it. We're singing about Christ. Micah himself is preaching about Christ And as we reflect on the gospel, we discover that Jesus is the pardon for sin. And not only will he be our king and our shepherd, but he's also our sacrifice. He stands as our substitute in our place. He bore our transgressions and our iniquities in our place. He was nailed to the cross in our place. And by his wounds, we are healed. Or to go back to the courtroom language, by his payment, we are pardoned. And we've looked at Romans 3 and how Paul showed us that the whole world is condemned before God in his courtroom Every one of us has our mouths shut. There's nothing that we can say to justify ourselves. Not one thing whatsoever. But then Paul goes on after the bad news of the gospel to the good news of the gospel. In Romans 3.21, he writes, Now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets, that would include Micah, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. We are all justified by grace as a gift, as he goes on to say, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That is an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is Paul getting at here? Paul is saying that while each of us stands condemned in God's courtroom, God has made a way to save his people. God's righteousness and the justification of God's actions of forgiving his people in the past as well as in the future comes through one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the atonement, is the propitiation. He is the satisfaction for our sins. When God looks upon Jesus and then looks upon us who have faith in Jesus, he is satisfied and he considers the right punishment for our sins to be met. And so while we are by nature unpardonable, God has given us pardon through Jesus Christ. I want to look at one last thing with you before we close. Let's turn to the end of Micah. Let's look at the end of the book. Micah 7. Two things I want us to focus on in the end here. One is that victory over sin and our enemies is coming because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Micah writes in verse 7, in the midst of calamity and turmoil, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And so he can say, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. The greatest accuser in your life is Satan. He's called the accuser. He's called the father of lies. And his mission and the mission of the demons, which are the fallen angels who fell with Satan in the beginning, their purpose is to condemn you, to rejoice over you. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress uses this language and this image of Apollyon seeking to destroy Christian, who is the hero in, this, in, this, uh, in the book. And he quotes this, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. 
And the reason why is that we have a better lawyer than the devil. And that's Jesus Christ. Micah says he will bear God's indignation until one arises to plead his cause. And so in the courtroom of God, you have God. You have the Father at the throne. You have Satan as the great accuser of God's people. And you have the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the world, as the one pleading our cause, demonstrating his sacrifice for us. So that in the morning or in the night, or in the day of your accusation, when the enemy is seeking your ruin and to accuse you, you have Christ before the throne of God, pleading your case. And so you can say, when I fall, I shall rise. You have the best legal help in the world before God. In our Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, one other point of hope, my friends. And that is God's covenant faithfulness to us. You know, we, have, we live on this side of the cross where God was faithful to the Israelites to bring Jesus. Jesus came, he lived, and he died. But we're still banking on God's faithfulness because we're promised that he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to bring in the new creation. And in the midst of Israel's covenant treachery, the prophet Micah ends with God's covenant faithfulness. The one who will forgive us and the one who will be faithful to his promises. We read there in verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, in passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Remember how Paul said that God now is both the just and the justifier in Jesus because he passed over former sins? Paul's talking about these sins, the sins of God's Old Testament people. Those two had to be met in Jesus. And in that way, God was absolutely faithful and Micah was absolutely right that God will remember his covenant faithfulness, his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He will remember his promises that he's given to us as the church. He will pardon iniquity in Jesus. He takes our sins and casts them into the depths of the sea. You know, your sins from this week, this weekend, he casts into the depths of the sea. Micah is saying this is future. Now we can say it as a past assurance, a surety. We're sure about this. 
because we have the gospel, he will, another image, tread our iniquities underfoot. It's all going to be smashed out and wiped out together. Before a holy God, we all stand condemned. But we have the best lawyer and the best payment in the world, an eternal, infinite sacrifice for sin in our Lord Jesus Christ, so that in God's court, he offers a pardon for sin through faith in Jesus Christ. I think the most common ailment of God's people is depression. It's discouragement. is weariness. And that is in itself is a sign of the battle that we face because the devil is there constantly to condemn and to accuse, to bring back your faults, the things you are most ashamed of. The devil constantly brings that before you. He wants you to be condemned. He wants you to end up just giving up and walking away from God. But we have an advocate, our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, who's always there, who will cast every one of those sins, even the ones you are most ashamed of, into the depths of the sea. They will be wiped out, tread underfoot, along with all the rest of God's enemies. Because God has given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're getting close to the end of the prophets now and close to the end of the Old Testament. And I look forward to getting and basking in the light of the gospel in the New Testament. But let's not forget how important it is for us to study the Old Testament. You know, Paul tells us these things are written for our instruction. And if we want to understand God's amazing grace... We also need to understand the amazing condemnation that our sins brought. And we see this in living color in the Old Testament. We discover our grave need for God in these prophets. So friends, I pray that this today as you go home, this week, and this season, you would rejoice in God's amazing grace who didn't just save old sinners like John Newton who save the likes of you and me as well. Let's pray.